The short game is listener-supported on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show and join us on our Discord, head to theshortgame.net or patreon.com slash theshortgame. Welcome back to The Short Game, a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm Shane, your host, and with me today, I have one of my favorite co-hosts. <laughs> I didn't know you were planning on introducing this show. I'm just sitting here like, wait, oh, oh, he's doing it. Yes, hi, this is Reagan. <laughs> I just thought I'd jump right in there and uh, make sure our listeners knew who was the top twin. Yes, well, it is just the two of us on this particular episode, and we are talking this week about Streets of Rage 4, which is very exciting because Shane and I are both very long time, pretty big fans oh, yeah. of the Streets of Rage series, which hasn't had a new entry since Streets of Rage 3 on the Genesis. So something like 22 or three years or something like that. Yeah, I think it's 23 years. And um, I, the, this is the most excited I've been about Streets of Rage since they dropped the uh, data disc number one. Uh, which was the Streets of Rage soundtrack re-release that came out uh, just a few years ago. I want to say around like uh, 2014, 15, something like that. And uh, this is a game series that I'm, I have a lot of fondness for the gameplay, but I actually have way more pent up fondness for the music of this game. So I was really curious as to whether Streets of Rage 4 would be a hit on its soundtrack. And uh, I am here to report that it was pretty good. We'll talk about the soundtrack in a little bit, but it's definitely one of the more contentious parts of this. But overall, the game has been getting great reviews and people seem to really be digging it. Now, on the other side, I actually I still really, really enjoy the gameplay of the Streets of Rage series. So to, if you aren't familiar with Streets of Rage, the very brief take is that this was a uh, very popular uh, it's basically Sega's uh, response to the popularity of the Final Fight series mostly on Nintendo. Uh, you know, they didn't get Final Fight on the uh, uh, on the Genesis, although they did get a nice uh, port of it to the uh, Sega CD, which is actually one of the better versions. But uh, at the time, they needed a response to Final Fight. Yeah. They needed a popular uh, beat-em-up series, and so Sega came out with the Streets of Rage series. And the Streets of Rage games are pretty typical of the genre of the, you know, the mid-90s brawlers, but they stood out in a few ways. The You and I did not get Final Fight. Um, we, were, we were a couple of Sega kids, but Final Fight was kind of in the zeitgeist a little bit because like a lot of these Capcom games um, from that era, it had this... Um, very arcade feel and this was the the era where I felt like a lot of people if you were excited about a game one of the things that people tended to say about it was it had that feel of an arcade game at home mm-hmm. and and Final Fight has that it has that like a progress through a series of levels you know what it actually reminds me of in terms of my actual arcade experience is some of the brawlers we wound up playing at like uh I don't know, Skeeters or wherever. We've talked before on this show about the Cowboys of Moo Mesa game. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I think brawlers as a genre are something that you don't really see that much right now. Yeah, and when you do see brawlers, you usually see them hybridized with other things, like with a lot of other mechanics. You don't see a lot of straight up brawlers anymore. In fact, I was really in the mood for a brawler this week, and part of why we're kind of having a late recording 
of this podcast is I spent a lot of time this week trying to make another game work for the show, oh, yeah. which was uh, Scrappers. Scrappers, which is out now on Apple Arcade. Scrappers is one of these kind of hybrid brawlers, but the the twist to it is that you are robots who are... It's a brawler, but you're also picking up garbage and putting it into a giant garbage truck that follows you through all the levels. Um, and, you know, there's a, like, there's some light RPG elements, there's some upgrade mechanics, and that's pretty typical of modern brawlers. They have these light RPG elements, they have these twists to the gameplay. You really don't see these kind of classic Final Fight-style games that much anymore. Yeah, it's, it feels like River City Ransom has far more descendants than than Final Fight or than Streets of Rage, which is a kind of a weird thing when at the time it felt like the Streets of Rage series was a massive, massive deal. And so was Final Fight, obviously. And like, and even things like the uh, the Turtles games and uh, other brawlers, that they were a really big deal, not just in arcades, but also on consoles. Maybe it feels that way to us because brawlers, especially in that era, but even kind of throughout their history, have been best played couch co-op multiplayer. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, uh, two video game loving young men such as ourselves in that era. <laughs> Thank you for avoiding the G word there. Yes, uh, we, we, f- we found a lot of games that had, we basically were hunting for games that had two player co-op mm-hmm. all the time. And it basically, it helped avoid um, knockdown, drag out fights. Uh, if there were, if we were to play a game like, I don't know, Mortal Kombat, in which you and I were fighting, uh, eventually feelings would be hurt because I would be so much better at these games than you were. So um, in order to avoid the kind of hurt feelings that would, would fall out of that and could poison our perfect harmonious Brotherhood, and eventually get our Sega Genesis taken away from us because you know you're not supposed to fight with your brother over these games. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like for this reason, games that had uh, two-player cooperative, even bad two-player cooperative, uh, were games that we were always on the hunt for. And and Streets of Rage Two in particular was one of the very best uh, two-player cooperative games that we had access to back then. So we played an absolute ton of Streets of Rage Two, and I still go back to Streets of Rage Two. I think I play through the entirety of Streets of Rage Two a couple times a year. You know, I I like to sit down. The nice thing about brawlers like this is that uh, once you're familiar with them uh, and you kind of have your you know your feel for the mechanics, there's still some challenge because these games are sometimes kind of fun, uh, kind of hard. But once you've got a feel for it, you can sit down and beat one of these things in a couple of hours. And that's just what I do sometimes with Streets of Rage 2. I still go back and, and sit, pull, pull up Streets of Rage 2 on whatever Genesis game playing device I have around, and I'll play through it from beginning to end. And I don't always beat it, but I can beat it occasionally. Um, and I'll usually get to the last level or two. Uh, and it's just a really nice sort of comfort food experience for me, something I go back to all the time. I don't always go back and play the game itself that much, but I do love to play it. I mean, it is something I'll pull out maybe once a year. I'm probably more frequently am pulling out the soundtracks, uh, to especially the Streets of Rage 2 soundtrack, because not 
only is it a very nostalgic piece of music for me, it's a really, really high quality driving, a very unique game soundtrack. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think the release of the original Streets of Rage and then, which exciting me even more, the Streets of Rage 2 soundtrack, I think those were the very first two game soundtracks that I bought on vinyl when I was collecting most of my current record collection. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and even the Streets of Rage 3 soundtrack, which gets some uh, gets some haters because it is a, a departure uh, from the sort of dance soundtrack style that the first two games were. Uh, Streets of Rage 3, if you haven't listened to its soundtrack in a while and if you've got the impression that it's bad, uh, go back and listen to that thing. It's on Spotify, and uh, yes, it has some sort of experimental music vibes to it, but actually it completely rules. I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in all three of the soundtracks. They're all good. E- even yeah. the third one is really, really good. I've got to give the third one a, a little bit more of a chance because I, I'm... Maybe it's just because I haven't picked it up on uh, on vinyl like I did the rest, being a total huge video game. Like, I'm a, a intersectional hipster uh, in that <laughs> I, uh, I am a retro video game hipster and a vinyl records hipster. And uh, it's something where, like, I, I haven't picked up that third one, but I'm very tempted by here by the fourth one. And if I got the fourth one, well, you know I'm going to have to complete the set and get the third yeah. one. Yeah. Let's talk about this third one, this fourth one, I should say. Yeah, we were pretty excited when we found out that they're putting out Streets of Rage 4. Um, And I got very much more excited when I learned about the development team that was going to be putting this thing together. I guess to to backtrack a little bit, there was this very long gap between Streets of Rage 3 and Streets of Rage 4 that just came out. And in that gap, the Streets of Rage sort of fandom, um, which has never been massive, but it has been pretty active in terms of keeping the series alive through things like fan games. There have been a number of really notable ones. Um, Probably the one that most people may have encountered somewhere is Beats of Rage and the uh, the sort of, uh, there's a a system called OpenBOR or Open Beats of Rage, uh, which is a open source game engine that was written originally to make a Streets of Rage fan game and then spun off as its own uh, sort of open source game engine that anybody can use. And it's been in, it's been used by a number of, it's used a lot by fan games for various things. But like if you, for example, like if you wanted to play a, uh, like a, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles brawler today, one of your options would be to go and find a Beats of Rage pack for that, which is what, what that means is somebody has either re-implemented uh, an old brawler or created a new brawler with maybe new art or maybe a remix of old art and put together a game that you can download and play using that engine. It's a really neat uh, thing that's kind of developed out of the Streets of Rage. I've yeah, never heard of this. You've never heard of Beats of that's, Rage? It, so take a look for it. It's pretty neat. Yeah. What, where did uh, When did this come about? Uh, that's been around for 10 years or more. I don't remember. Um, but uh, wow, it's no the, it's, yeah, it's, it's not new at all. Uh, there were a bunch of those like... I remember back when I was first, when the Dreamcast uh, was, when like hacks and homebrew on the Dreamcast were a big deal. Uh, I played a number of uh, Beats of Rage games ported to the Dreamcast, which was actually kind of a fun platform for them because you could just download a CD, burn it, and then there was a really neat little brawler that you could play through. Um, Although uh, I don't know how active that is as a, as a tool and as a scene anymore. It's definitely something that I think is important as part of the history of the series. There was also a really popular um, thing called Streets of Rage Remake, 
which I think wasn't using the Beats of Rage engine. I think it was its own thing. Um, and I haven't played that, but from what I hear, it's a really good sort of remake with new elements and remixing of the first three games in a new engine. Um, so like the Streets of Rage s series has been uh, shuttered for quite a while, but there is a certain fandom that I think the fact that it kept having these fan games meant that there's still a community of developers who maybe even made those fan games and kind of continue to keep the series alive in people's imagination. Um, and so I mentioned this partly because the current developers, uh, some of the one of the people at I think it was Lizard Cube, one of those developers mentioned that when they decided to make this game, one of the things they did was go back and play a bunch of Streets of Rage fan games because it helped them get an idea of what it was that the Streets of Rage fandom would want out of a new game. And you really feel that uh, when you play this. So yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned that when I saw who this game was being developed by, I basically went nuts. And that's because it's developed by Lizard Cube, Guard Crush Games, and .mu, and .mu's primarily the publisher. Um, Shane, have you played any of the Dragon's Trap remake, or the Wonder Boy and the Dragon's Trap game by uh, Lizard Cube? Those are words that I know. This, if you, if you haven't played this game, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It was... Um, Lizard Cube is a developer that does, um, well, it seems like their, their thing is like retro video game revivals and remakes. And I think about two or three years ago, they put out a game that was a, uh, a modern remake of a game for the Sega Master System called um, uh, Wonder Boy 4, The Dragon's Trap. I may be mis mixing up the title. The Wonder Boy series is kind of complicated like that. And those are just like platformers, right? They're platformers, but this one in particular, the fourth one, uh, The Dragon's Trap, was in a way the early one of the very earliest examples of the ideas that would become the Metroidvania. So it's more than a straight platformer. It involves a lot of backtracking across areas that you've already gone to. Um, you play as a character that can collect items that enable him to uh, transform into different. So there's like a, there's like a Wonder Boy, but yeah, there's he turns also into different like, monsters. Yeah, right? Lizard Boy, Dragon Man, li or li Lion Man, that kind of thing, um, and. What they did with that remake was essentially they kept the uh, they kept the gameplay identical to the original version. There's essentially no new features or anything changed about the gameplay. They just added a new art style, and they also added a toggle where you can switch instantly between the original Master System graphics and their beautifully illustrated uh, sort of comic book style graphics. And uh, th that art style is the same art style they're using for Streets of Rage 4. It looks phenomenal. And what was amazing about it was that they managed to take this game that would be antique by almost any definition and make it feel extremely modern while barely touching the way that it actually plays at all. Um, and it's, it's amazing. It, it makes you totally reevaluate the game really design awesome. of this incredibly old game um, that honestly, if I'd booted it up on an actual master system, I would have probably played it for a second and said, well, this is going to be too hard or too annoying or there are certain things about the game design that feel too old antique to me. Whereas suddenly playing exactly the same game, um, but with their take on it, you know, widescreen presentation, new art, etc., it suddenly felt like brand new. With And all these game design choices that were made back in the 80s suddenly felt brilliant and new to be in a way that made no sense, but really did feel that way. So anyway, I can't recommend that enough, and I'm a huge fan of them as a developer because of it. And then when I heard of Guard Crush Games, 
Uh, they, I believe, grew out of the Streets of Rage fan game community, and their most recent, they're, they're, the one game that they're most known for is a game called Streets of Fury, which is a commercial game, not like a fan game. It's something that they've specifically released themselves. You can go and buy it on Steam. It's on sale, by the way. I actually just recently picked it up. Wow, I wonder what the inspiration for Streets of Fury is. <laughs> I know, right? But what's really fascinating about this, Shane, have you seen Streets of Fury? No. Uh, go look up a photo of it right now. Okay, I'm finding Streets of Fury. It looks... Looking at the images. It looks like ass. Uh, Yeah, yeah. No, it's got... Okay, so if you've played like Mortal Kombat, like some of the early ones where they used real photographic graphics, it's got a look that has it's kind of like that. Um, but it looks like they took a bunch of photos of the same like college student in a sleeveless tank top and like color shifted him so that he became like three different enemy types and is just like one scruffy guy. So it looks like the same scruffy guy having like a 12-way brawl with himself in front of a picture of a hospital. Apparently some of the uh, the enemies are like YouTubers that they got to take photos of, that kind of thing. It looks like, I, th- this is a art style that I could not be less interested in. It looks like yeah, absolute, looks like absolute trash. <laughs> but I read some reviews of this thing and apparently it got amazing reviews. Every review of it is like, this game plays better than any brawler I've played in years but it looks like trash. And so this is a brilliant uh, convergence. This, the, uh, they basically, they used the, uh, the Streets of Fury engine for Streets of Rage 4. They're running on the same engine or a modified version of the Streets of oh. Fury engine. Um, okay. So Streets of Fury looks like ass, plays like the most kick-ass modern version of a Streets of Rage game ever. Lizard Cube, brilliant artists who can bring incredible art style to a retro game, these two developers came together and created this game with .mu Publishing, as far as I understand it. I think it's a brilliant convergence. Looking at these screenshots of uh, Streets of Fury, I, the one thing I will say is it looks like on top of this absolute crap art, they've got some pretty good lighting effects. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think they must have brought that over to Streets of Rage 4, which has gorgeous art. And then on top of it, some incredible lighting effects. Yeah. So So anyway, I think, you know, not to spend too much more time there, but I think when I heard about the development team, and then of course, when I immediately saw the trailer uh, for this, I was immediately very, very excited. And uh, fortunately, the game actually totally kicks ass. I I mean, certainly it depends on your uh, involvement with and, and how much you like the series. I I think this is a good modern brawler that almost anybody who likes brawlers should check out. Um, I've definitely heard some people say, and for example, we have some people on our Discord who gave this game a try and who were expecting something a little more in the um, in the uh, you know RPG mechanic infused uh, River City Ransom lineage, and this isn't yeah. that. This sort of feels like it skipped a generation and is a is a. Uh, extension of the original Streets of Rage concept um, but it's uh, so if you are if you're coming in expecting the sort of like RPG progression and everything you're not going to find that here but it absolutely kicks ass as a Streets of Rage game it's an absolute win in terms of like feeling like a sequel to Streets of Rage 2 and 3. Can we talk about the gameplay of this game specifically just sort of irrespective of all the references and its lineage and all of that mm-hmm. so The game is a series of levels, and each level is very distinct uh, as its own 
kind of starting point. Some of them have a little bit of an intro to them. You're, you're usually starting from a map that shows you little pins on the map for all of the 12 levels that you're going to wind up going to. And these levels are basically go from left to right. Uh, you've chosen one of three or four characters and you're going to use your moves to punch your way through a bunch of enemies. Um, first, let's talk about some of the characters and the moves. Hmm. The controls are very simple to this game. There's a... I mean, there's really, depending on, I guess you'd say there's, I guess there's, there's it does use four buttons, but really there are only two attack buttons. So already we've got it very simplified down. Um, you have a main attack button that you can just kind of spam to do punch, 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 punch. Uh, and if you're landing multiple punches, your character will do a little bit of a combo. So that's the first place where each character is a little different. Um, each of the characters will do a little bit of a different combo, just wailing on the main attack button. Axel, the hero from all of the Streets of Rage games, has a kind of a boxing attack uh, that chains really well, and he can kind of keep it keep that going for quite a while. Uh, Blaze, the heroine from all of the Streets of Rage games, has a combo that ends in a uh, drop kick punch. Uh, that sends an enemy flying. We've also got a new character called Cherry, who I think is the the daughter of I can't remember the other uh, Adam. I forget. Um, anyway, I forget the last name. Yeah. But Adam was one of the characters in Streets of Rage One, and he's also the character that you're rescuing in Streets of Rage Two, but he's not playable. Right. Um, but yeah, Cherry is Adam's daughter. Yeah, and she has a uh, a sweet guitar uh, that she uses as part of some of her moves, uh, slung across her back. Um, and her attacks, I think, um, I, I may be, you played more of Cherry than I did. What was her, like, standard attack chain like? Yeah, so Cherry is a lot faster than any of the other characters, and she can dash, which makes a huge difference. So um, the Axel basically plays like he does in Streets of Rage 2, which is that he, he walks pretty slowly, um, but he punches very hard. Cherry moves faster at, at a base level and can do a dash by double-tapping a direction. Um, and so Cherry's uh, Cherry's attacks are more aerial. If you are, it's a little more contextual as well. Like there's certain uh, certain times where she will either she'll just do a bunch of punches and kicks as part of her combo, or she'll jump onto someone and kind of like look like she's gripping them and punching them while uh, while while sort of grabbing onto them. Yeah, that kind of gets into the grabs and things like that. Yeah, although the, the I game think that the game has part of combos I, in certain circumstances. Anyway, it doesn't matter. No, I, I, that's that's her. That's part. That's one of her grab. Uh, in fact, I think that's one of the disadvantages for that character because with most of the characters you you get a grab on them and then you can kind of jump to the other side of the character to use mm. them as a shield <laughs> jump to the other side of the enemy uh, and she can't really do that she like jumps onto their shoulders and punches them in the face which looks awesome but to me it was a little harder to harder to work with um, so yeah they have this main attack that is your kind of light attack you could spam it all day um, second and this is a place where it's a little different They've always in the series had a strong attack that uh, usually has some kind of uh, super-powered flavor to it, like, you know, fire or uh, spirit effects, um, and often has a lot of range on it, and is very different for the different characters. Um, that has always used some of your health bar, but they've done a really interesting tweak here, which is that now, instead of just flat-out using your health bar to do this move... Um, you are using your health bar, but it adds kind of like green damage to your health bar. And 
if you 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 can use even your whole health bar in that way, and as long as you don't get hit, you can still recover it without having to use any health items. So you can use these super powerful moves, and then if you chain into standard attacks, those standard attacks are recharging that green damage on your health bar. So this adds a really great push and pull. Yeah, I really, really love this change because yeah, the push and pull is a super important part of it, but also it's it, it changes the, the fundamental use of the special moves. Special moves have always been a part of Streets of Rage, but they've always been something that you really kind of want to save for desperation moments, like, or when you need to do a massive amount of damage all at once, like you're getting a, a hit in on a boss. So I would always save them for bosses. Uh, and using them on regular enemies always felt like an accident or a mistake, uh, and it felt like you were being punished for it. Whereas um, now the game is really about um, finding opportunities to use those special moves in ways that you know you can safely recover that health very quickly. So it feels like the game is no longer punishing you for making good decisions, it's just rewarding you for, um, for using those moves cautiously and in the right opportunities. Um, and being able to use those special moves more often makes the game feel fresher because you're no longer essentially just restricted to one attack button and then two on bosses. Suddenly you have this larger vocabulary even though it's using basically the same kind of move set that you had in the original Streets of Rage games. I think it's a really brilliant change. Um, and it doesn't make the game significantly easier, really. Uh, it does allow you to use those moves more freely, but it still has that risk to it where, you know, you can get hit almost any at any moment in Streets of Rage, uh, you know, if, if you get surrounded or something. Um, and so uh, using the uh, using those super moves or the, uh, the special moves uh, always feels like a risk, but it feels like a really fun risk as opposed to just mm -hmm. feeling like you're, you know, burning health for no particularly good reason until you get to the boss. Yes, and it rewards you for having good positioning, which the Streets of Rage games really have always been about brawler positioning yeah and the idea with positioning in a brawler is in most cases with especially with a lot of the characters in this game you are slower than the enemies and there is a lot of them um but you have a good understanding of how they move and key here is that you are trying to position yourself um above or below them if they're going to be attacking because in a brawler Everyone exists as a uh, paper cutout, uh, and you can only land a hit on someone if you're uh, quite close on the vertical plane with them. So a lot of the game mean is about finding ways to stay off of your enemy's line um, and moving on diagonals until you can uh, get up close to them and then landing a big combo. All of the enemies have an AI where they are trying to land a hit on you and usually they can attack from farther range than you can. Usually they're faster moving than you are and so on. Yeah, you, you get towards the end of the game, there's dudes with guns. It's, yeah. It's nasty. <laughs> they can come up and just shoot you. But like, you want to be able to uh, circle around the enemies in such a way that their AI can't quite get them in a position to get one of these, uh, these attacks off on you. Uh, you want to come down or up at them from the side. 
um, mm -hmm. so that you just get into the right position to attack them without giving them a lot of time or positioning to attack you, or you come at them from the side and that in, that causes a grab. So unlike some other brawlers, grabs aren't something that you actively do with a button in Streets of Rage. Anytime that you cross into someone's, into an enemy's space uh, from above or below, or I guess in this case, we're just talking about the sort of axis that is into or out of the screen, then you automatically grab them. Uh, and Shane was mentioning grabs earlier. Uh, something about this game makes those grabs feel a lot more powerful and important. Um, particularly for, we didn't yeah. talk about the character Floyd. Floyd is a character that's really optimized to do basically nothing but grabs, and he's super fun to use. Floyd rules. Floyd is my favorite new character. I mean, Cherry is great, but Floyd is my favorite of the new characters because he's this guy with huge, first off, I'm pretty sure he's, he's Maori. He's got some Maori tattoos. Uh, and he's got these two gigantic robot arms. And uh, there's two very unique things about Floyd and those giant arms. One is when he does a grab, he picks the enemy up and can keep walking. No other, no other character in the game can pick up and carry an enemy. Mm -hmm. And then two, he can pick up a second enemy. So if you're carrying an enemy and then you happen to get a grab off on a second enemy, he takes both of them and slams them together over his head. <laughs> I love in it. In what is probably so the coolest new move in the game. Um, and to just to further emphasize that he's like really all about the grabs, um, his special is pretty weak, but it does let you do grabs because he uses these robot arms that like zap out uh, grab someone at, at a distance and then pull them back. So you can grab someone even when you're usually out of their range. Mm -hmm. uh, so he can do a lot more of these grabs from the front. Yeah, he is amazing at clearing. If you have a room full of just sort of like, you know, standard level enemies, um, he can basically just sort of circle around until you grab two of them, slam them together. Circle some more until you grab two of them, slam them together. And I found that some levels that I was just not able to get through, as for example, Cherry, who is really focused on hurting one enemy at a time, and while she's doing it, is very vulnerable from behind. Um, uh, Floyd, you can really control a space by, a, you, uh, you can kick a bunch of ass without even needing to hit the attack button by just sort of like grabbing dudes and he does the automatic, uh, automatic slam when you click up two of them, grab two more of them, they slam, grab two more of them, slam. It's a lot of fun to do. I, I think it's also worth mentioning that like, we said that there's only two attacks. There's this, the power attack and the normal attack, but all of them have lots of different ways to use them. Mm -hmm. So um, for example, if you, have an enemy grabbed, you're doing a different attack. You're attacking that grabbed enemy. And for Floyd, he lifts that enemy up and then uses the electricity of his arms to shock them, dealing lots and lots of damage to the grabbed enemy, which is a good way to deal with certain bosses. But uh, to talk about some of that contextuality, because I feel like if we're talking about these characters, we kind of have to get into it. Um, there's a double tap version of the mm, attacks yes, for each character. That. So for Cherry, that makes her dash, and then she can do a lunging attack. Um, for Axel, you do a double tap, and then attack, uh, double tapping the D-pad, and then attacking to uh, do a fiery uppercut. These double tap attacks are some of the most important attacks in the game, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because they have a little bit of extra extra power. They have a little bit of extra movement built into the attack in most cases. So they they hit 
a, a larger area than the standard attacks, and they don't cost you health. So, so my my probably my two favorite characters when you're dealing with a lot of levels is Blaze and Floyd, uh, because both of them have these contextual attacks that let you send enemies flying all over the place. Um, throwing enemies into other enemies is great. Throwing enemies out of the stage is even better. Mm, yeah, uh, because there are because with um, with Floyd, he can pick enemies up and then throw them off of a cliff if there is one. Um, and that's a very fast way to start dealing with large crowds. And with Blaze, she can do a grab and throw if you get the enemy from the right direction. So she has almost as good a version of that as Floyd does. So that's why, especially as we got to some of my favorite levels, which are the level I'm kind of stuck on right now, absolutely rules for this uh, because it has an elevator in it. And there's a lot of throws you can do to like chuck people out of the elevator. There's a lot more to these characters. I think this is a game that really rewards learning the moveset of the characters mm-hmm. like um, I still I still don't feel like I've learned everything there is to know even about some of my favorite characters uh, figuring out how to launch these long combo chains uh, mm-hmm. chaining you know these throws with the uh, and we haven't even talked about the last kind of move which is the star move yeah which is also new for this version of the game yes uh, you can pick up these collectible items that are glowing stars and you usually start the game with one of them um, and they let you hit the attack and uh, item pickup button at the same time if you just match yeah. those two and it will do a very splashy uh, screen clearing attack that usually hits all the enemies around you and it's a little bit different for the different characters but for the most part this is a panic button move um, and they're they're very cool looking, and they're also really good in these in these levels where a lot of the time you're going to end up surrounded at a certain point and need a panic button. Yeah. To kind of recap, the main things that if you are a series familiar, if you're familiar with the series, the big things that are new are the re the you know re, uh, regenerating health based on specials, which I think is probably the biggest change and absolute best change in in the game. Just a small tweak that just absolutely makes the game feel faster and more exciting. Uh, the star moves are new. It's also separated uh, picking up and throwing items onto its own button. Um, previously, in order to pick up an item, you would stand above it and hit attack. And that actually made it really fiddly in certain cases. I think this is just a matter of like, you were playing on a three button Genesis pad probably. So um, moving, picking up items and also throwing items onto its own button has made that uh, a lot easier to pull off, particularly easy to pull off throws in the right context. So that's a big productive change. and then just overall, uh, other things that are really, uh, I mean, it's hard to say like, wow, they've really improved things from this 23-year-old game. But like, there are certain things about it that just feel very fresh. Uh, it's beautiful looking. So many more frames of animation. Uh, you know, the characters have something like a thousand frames of it. The main characters have something like a thousand frames of animation per character. And enemies have something like two or three hundred frames of animations for each enemy. And all of them are rendered wow. in this incredible sort of comic book art style that doesn't just feel like, um, I mean, when I first saw the original trailer, I thought it looked fantastic. Then I saw some later trailers and I started getting a little skeptical, but you have to see this thing in motion and actually play it. Every frame looks great. And it uh, even the like flashy, um, 
like uh, ambient lighting and everything that they've done just really is additive. It really, I was skeptical about it at first, but it really looks great when you're playing it. And a lot of it is customizable. So there are uh, menu options to do things like turn off or turn down the ambient lighting effects. You can turn on various screen filters, like a CRT filter if you want to kind of go that way. The game looks amazing and is very customizable. And it ran, we played the Switch version, it ran rock solid locked at 60 frames per second, which is incredible for a game like this running on the Switch. It's, it's a great, really well pulled off technical effort in addition to artistically looking fantastic. I think the art style is a really, it feels like a really natural progression for the series. Um, I, and I could see that maybe not lining up with certain people's expectations here. Uh, but the original Streets of Rage had kind of two art styles. It had the in-game art style and then it had the box art. Yeah. Right? So the in-game art style um, of the original Streets of Rage games was very much inspired by like Final Fight, uh, where you know it's the, the level of detail isn't crazy high, um, but you have these characters that are defined by their color and their shape. Um, you know, their uh, Blaze is wearing red from head to toe. Um, all about the movement and the, like the, the swish of the hair and things like that. Axel is just your you know, muscle-bound shape in a white tank top. Uh, the level of detail is not super high, but it, it matches with a lot of what you'd expect from games from this era and genre. Uh, and then the other art style that I think is very much associated with Streets of Rage is the box art for the Streets of Rage series, which has mm -hmm. always had this very cinematic look to it, which if I were to compare it to something, I would compare it to like like a hand-painted movie poster from like a, a, the a, a Hong Kong action film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Right. And uh, that style has this really um, kind of painterly or illustratory look to it. And I honestly feel like that and the art style of the game itself are kind of synthesized a little bit together into this new art style. I would add on to that though, like I think there's a, a real specific uh, French indie comics vibe or look to this. Uh, you know, Lizard Cube, I believe are mm. French. And um, you know, I'm not quite saying like this looks like uh, asterisk and obelisk or anything like that, but like it has a indie comics look that, and and specifically I think like a European indie comics look. It's not quite anime yeah. inflected, but it's also not like 90s comic booky like beefcake inflected. It's this it's this midpoint or its own thing that just like looks really really good to me. It's just an art style that I find very appealing. Yeah. I'm, I'm not the person who can always like pinpoint the kind of stylistic origins of a particular illustration style. Me neither, really. This leans a lot more Disney than anime, if that makes sense. Like it has the look of, if I were to compare it to a cartoon, I would compare it to something like Treasure Planet more than like uh like an anime. I don't know if that's making sense. But, I, I think it does, um, but yeah, it like, definitely, it, it, it's much cooler looking than that makes it sound because Treasure Planet looks kind of goofy. But yes, it, it, it has a great look that I, I mean, you know, look up a video of this game, obviously, but like, I think overall, 
the art style is a huge success and really additive, and I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the direction that they decided to go here. Absolutely. And like you said, lots of, lots of work has gone into the animation, and there's like lots of layers to it. There's the, um, the beautiful scenery of the game, um, which in, in a brawler like this, the levels functionally are usually not super interactive. There are usually barrels and boxes for you to break to get items. And sometimes there are things that you can pick up like a uh, street sign that you can now use as a, as a bludgeon. Uh, but for the most part, these levels are functionally hallways. But in those backgrounds, uh, they have done a lot of work. The original backgrounds in the Streets of Rage series are full of these gorgeous parallax scrolling cityscapes. That's like the, the number one thing you see. But in those games, they did so much with what they had. Like you'd have a level in Streets of Rage 2 where, um, okay, we're going to a baseball field. Okay, don't know why we're going to a baseball field, uh, but we're gonna see lots of different parts of that baseball field culminating in a big boss fight right at home, home plate, you know? Uh, or we're going to a we're going to a abandoned theme park, uh, and then we're going to go into the House of Horrors, and then we're going to have a fight with an actual alien for some reason. Uh, <laughs> but of so, course, once you beat the alien, it turns out it was part of the House of Horrors. You know, it's playing with you a little bit. It's it's or or like go onto a pirate ship. Mm -hmm. Well, no, you're not actually on a pirate ship. You're on a pirate ship ride. That kind of thing. Really fun. Yeah, obviously, the art of the of the original games was really fun and playful, and that's still true here. Um, and then on top of that, they've added this whole level of uh, lighting that works for me in a way that I think it's it's really subtle. There's like uh, kind of light sources in there that they, they managed to integrate the light sources into this hand-drawn character art somehow in mm -hmm. a way that's really effective and good and uh, adds the, you know, reflections, stuff like that. All of this brings a really really good look to life in the game. Yeah, makes the characters feel sort of grounded in the backgrounds in a way that I uh, I, I found myself really appreciating. Like when I, when I first looked at it, I thought like, ah, oh, they're just doing like light coloring the, the hand-drawn sprites. And I thought that looked a little goofy at first, but and it kind of does in the trailer. I don't know if anything specifically changed between the trailer or it just feels different when you're playing it. But in the actual context of the game, uh, it, it just makes everything feel really grounded and, and looks really nice. Like things like, you know, a, a character will throw a bottle of acid that glows an intense green color and that green color gets sort of realistically reflected on your character as like underlighting in a way that like, it, it's, it's amazing to see that pulled off on something that's clearly a hand-drawn sprite, it, but it, it looks really effective. I, I thought it, it's really, really great. Um, yeah, Shane, you were talking about some of the levels and how they are, you know, functionally hallways, but they manage to do a lot with what they what they do. More so than in the past games, this game does a good job of telling little mini stories with the levels. And I, I don't want to talk through everything, but I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about some of our favorite stages or levels in this game. And for me, the number one yeah. is the police precinct level. So at, I think it's the third level. I might be getting that wrong. But at, at the end of the previous level, you get arrested and thrown in a jail cell. And then the next, uh, the next level starts with you in a jail cell, 
and you break out of the jail cell, make your way through the, the jail and then through the police offices adjoining the jail and into the commissioner's office and have a boss fight with the police commissioner. And what I really love about this is that the whole way uh, there are escaping prisoners and police officers and you're fighting them both but they're fighting each other that's something i don't think i ever saw in the earlier streets of rage games and it feels like a story right you know this this progress progression from the like cell in the basement to the commissioner's office to go and kick the commissioner's ass um feels like this great little miniature story and and also seeing that sort of like life of it is still a very basic beat-em-up of characters with really, really basic AI interacting with each other, but having that feeling of like, well, maybe actually I need to take a second and step back and let the uh, let the police officers kick the prisoners' asses, and then I'll go kick the police officers' asses, or something like that, felt like some, it felt really fresh, not like something I'd seen in Streets of Rage before. And it was also one of the harder levels. It's a really fun level. I mean, it, that was when I was like, wow, okay, this game is doing amazing stuff. Uh, within the context of Streets of Rage and still really feeling like Streets of Rage, but doing stuff that feels really new and fresh. And I mean, I don't know, do you have any other favorite levels, something that was that stuck out to you? Well, one of my favorite levels so far has been the 11th level, which is a airplane level. And this is one that has a very large variety in terms of the enemies. And it also kind of feels like a level that's really trying to teach you something as you play it. So this is a level that starts off with you getting, I think it's right after the concert level. Um, and so, at the end yeah. of the concert level, this concert stage starts dropping down into the earth in uh, one of these sideways diagonal elevators that only exist in science fiction. So the start of the level is a contained elevator fight. And the first thing that happens is it drops a bunch of the most standard boring enemy onto this elevator with you. And you start to realize pretty quick, okay, you know, it's a tight space, got to avoid getting mobbed. And then I think what this level is trying to teach you is like, remember, this is an elevator fight. You can use throws and moves that uh, shoot an enemy off. Uh, but there's only one open side to this elevator, so it's all about blasting the enemies off this one side of the elevator. So it goes through a few waves, and the neat thing about this is I felt like each wave is really trying to get you to do a specific thing. So the first one is just a lot of really basic enemies. Get these enemies, either kill them or blast them off, ideally. And then the second wave of enemies that you get, um, it is dropping in the kickers. We haven't talked about the kicker enemy. It's one of my favorite new enemy types. Um, they're these guys that come around, that have like a bandana on their head and these big baggy pants and no shirt. they <laughs> never take their hands out of their pockets. They have no shirt um, and they have this really s s kind of swept back posture and uh, the thing about these enemies is that they'll do these super long kicks at you, uh, going back and forth the whole way across the stage. Well, they're a kind of a tricky enemy because they have a long line uh, that they can that they can threaten you on. Um, so you can keep doing the throws, or hey, if you get them to kick at you, you can get them to throw themselves off of the elevator. <laughs> yeah. And now, and now it drops actually two rounds of the. Um, I don't really know what any of the proper names for these are, but the art school chicks. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> they look like anarchists. 
uh, they have punky colored hair and they always produce these flasks that have the kind of their little flasks of elemental damage goop. Uh, you first start dealing with poison. I think these ones have fire. So you get a round of these, and what I think is great is it's subverting what it's already taught you in this one screen, this one section of this level, which is throw the enemies or get the enemies to throw themselves. Uh, if you grab this kind of enemy, they drop their flask of fire, and you both catch on fire and take damage. So now you have to figure out, okay, so how do I do deal with these enemies in a way uh, that doesn't light me on fire when they drop the flask? And for me, I'm sure there's different ways to do this. For me, the way was to use Blaze's throw attack, uh, which if you do it fast enough, Blaze moves out of the way of the dropping flask of fire as well. So this this part of the level felt really like a kind of a one-one kind of experience where it's like, okay, we're gonna teach you to do this one special thing, and then we're gonna test you on it. Um, can you throw the fire dropping chicks off the elevator? Uh, without getting burst into flames. And then they actually drop two waves of that kind of enemy at you to, to really test you. Once the elevator gets all the way down to the bottom, now you're on um, an airplane runway, which I guess is underground. I'm very confused by that. Uh, before you can get off of the elevator, another flask of elemental stuff comes at you. This time, uh, it is the electrical stuff. Uh, I think it's actually the first time you're seeing them throw the electrical damage. And the electrical damage stuff basically... Uh, paralyzes you, which is no good in this game. Don't get paralyzed. So um, the enemies that you're facing off with on the way down this really kind of coolly illustrated runway are some of the early enemies from that police station level that you mentioned. In that level, you have a, a bunch of these cop enemies that are one of my favorite new designs. It's like this big hulking cop um, who does a charge attack at you, grabs you, throws you to the ground, and hits you with a stun gun, right? <laughs> um, the the stun gun cop is one of the most, like, infuriating enemies in the game. Not number one, which is Knife Guy, who's been in every iteration <laughs> of the series. I'm uh, so happy to maybe, see Knife Guy. <laughs> the Knife Guy enemy is so great because of his posture. He just, like, holds the knife at his belly button facing right out, and he, like, runs to the corner of the screen, like gets a sight on you, and then like charges the whole way across the screen with his knife. He's very easy to learn to dodge, but when things get hectic, Knife Guy becomes like the most annoying thing. So still love Knife Guy. Also, you can't grab Knife Guy, so that's annoying. But yeah, so not only do we have Stun Gun Cop, uh, but we also have the other enemy that we had from the cops that was really annoying, the Shield Cop. And they have these shields that you have to wear down. Um, so suddenly coming at you is a phalanx with three of the shield cops, one of the stun gun cops, and then two of the anarchist chicks in the back throwing lightning grenades. Figuring out that encounter is very hard. Even if you turn the difficulty all the way down, you still have to play strategically to get past these enemies. And there's two groups that are pretty similar. They're kind of variations on that as you take the runway. Then... <laughs> you get to the plane. And on the plane, we have probably the most unfair enemy that they've put in this game so far, which is the big dude with a gun. <laughs> this is a game series where people don't really have guns. Um, I have always kind of assumed that it takes place in Australia because A, 
not very many guns, and B, uh, one of the playable characters has been a kangaroo. <laughs> um, so I don't know really where. I think they said the name of the city, uh, which is like Wood, Wood Oak City. Oak City. Yeah. Wood Oak City. Wood Oak City um, also kind of sounds like the name Australians would give to something. I don't know. But uh, so anyway, you get you get on this airplane and you have two knife guys and a gun guy. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so and already in a super tiny space, again, you're dodging two knife guys while trying to deal with a gun guy. And so again, throws become very important. This time, number one goal, throw gun guy out of the plane, usually satisfying <laughs> to do. Yep. Uh, because as the plane takes off. Now, um, the plane itself has a great variety to it because this is continues this really great design with the enemies and their use and really beautiful level design. The plane takes off. Uh, you have to make it through a hallway that's like the cargo area of the plane that has quite a few of the gun guys and then a mix of different enemies, including some shield guys. Shield guy, gun guy is a really annoying combination. And you make your way to the end of that where there's a couple of gun guys and like two or three shield guys. You get through all of that. Now you're in the luxury area of this airplane which has like uh, kind of big beautiful tables and like it's this is a this is it makes it clear okay this is a very wealthy person's private plane. Um, you know we're chasing by the way at this point um, Mr. Y son of Mr. X from the previous game head of the Y syndicate. So this is really driving home how wealthy they are. You can you can crash through the um, the seats in this the the high these fancy airplane seats, if you break them, um, sometimes you get items, but underneath each one, there's an electrical contact that occasionally shocks. And so the the, the next encounter is some of these, um, I can't remember, I don't know what, I, what to really call these characters, but they are like punk, another kind of punky 90s chick in a tube top, uh, and they do flying kicks at you. And these are the kind of enemies that you, they move a lot on diagonal, so you want a lot of space. So in this part of the level, smash these seats, clear these spaces. Now you've got these spots on the floor that they will stumble into and get electrocuted. And, and that's a good strategy to get through this area. But now we're getting tighter and tighter in spaces. The next area, there's this huge conference room table and you can kind of circle around it. A couple of times, the airplane does a huge dive which makes you and everything and everyone in the plane uh, levitate and float up for a second, unable to really do anything. And they do a really clever thing in the level design here where they put some of the power-ups behind a table and you only will see them when the plane is doing a dive in order to know where they are. Um, so you make your way through the end of this. Now you get to the cockpit and in the cockpit, you're facing off against Mr. Y. Mr. Y is the most unfair shit that has ever been put in a video game. Because By the way, I want to interrupt for a second, and whenever, whenever Shane says the word unfair in the context of Streets of Rage, that means it kicks ass. Because this game is about you have only your fists against the entire syndicate, right? Like, the, the whole point of this game is, is these series of incredibly unfair fights. And like, yes, there are times when you'll get frustrated with this game. We should probably talk a little bit about the difficulty and difficulty options in a minute. But like, there are a lot of times where this game is really unfair, and that is often where it kicks the most ass. So, uh, yes. Exactly. And uh, so the Mr. Y fight, have you beaten Mr. Y as well? Yes, yes I have. I'm and, only uh, 
he's barely there with Mr. Yeah, White. Yeah, so I, I, okay. I think we're both basically at the same spot, which is that there are 12 levels in this game, and uh, because of the uh, time to recording, um, I've only beat 11 of them. Yeah, we wasted right a lot of time on scrappers. We haven't, I haven't, I am, I am right at the place where I'm, I'm pretty sure today I'm going to beat Mr. Y, but like I said, he, he sucks. Yeah. Um, Mr. Y has, in the cockpit of a plane, he is attacking you with an Uzi, a rocket launcher, <laughs> um, and just fistfuls of grenades. So first off, he has clearly no no uh, no, no desire to preserve his own life. No. no sense of self-preservation. He's blowing up everything with a with a grenade launcher and a rocket launcher inside the cockpit of an airplane. Um, but again, like the gun guy, uh, he is firing off his Uzi. And the Uzi uh, shoots on the diagonal. So positioning becomes incredibly... This becomes almost like a bullet hell kind of situation. And I would say the bosses, as we get a little closer to the end here, the same is kind of true of the boss in the concert level. Um, positioning and knowing like the movement of how their attacks work and the lines where the bullets and energy blobs and you know, music waves or whatever are going to be moving becomes really important. Um, so fighting Mr. X, excuse me, my father was Mr. X. <laughs> yes, Mr. Y. Uh, fighting Mr. Y becomes all about um, staying out of the way of these ridiculous attacks, knowing when it's safe to move in, uh, and then unloading with a combo to get as many hits in as you can while uh, the opportunity is is ready. And hopefully uh, keeping... so. The, the best strategy I've, I have for Mr. Y so far is uh, all of that, plus uh, I have found that Blaze is really good for comboing on enemies because Blaze has um, moves that tend to bounce the enemy around. Her um, her star move puts them up in the air. Uh, if you, Mr. Y tends to be against a wall, so you can bounce them off the wall, bounce them off the floor with her double tap attack, uh, and you can get probably uh, 15 or 20 hits in on Mr. Y before you have to retreat and continue to dodge bizarre Uzi gunshots uh, again for a little while. So that's where I am with that game. Um, and that so far has been my very favorite level, even though it has been by far the hardest one to deal with and uh, has felt at the start of each of these many different encounters I've explained to you, like, how do they expect me to do this? But it really is about just learning how to get past each thing and then managing to execute on it. And that's what has made this really, really my favorite level. Yeah, really satisfying the whole way through. And it does a great build. The, the level Shane was mentioning isn't even the final level. It's the next to last and has the, uh, like, it really, it, there's a lot of places in this game that shine in a very similar way to what Shane was describing here. The whole way through is great. Um, I, I wanted to mention, because Shane was talking about so much, how, how difficult this game is. It is a hard game. But it is designed, like the earlier games, it's designed to be something that you're going to play through multiple times. Unlike previous games, you don't just play through it on one set of lives and continues. So you're not starting over from the beginning if you get a game over or whatever. Um, every level it drops you into, you start with three lives, uh, you know, one life and then two in reserve. Um, and, uh, you know, if you run out of those lives, you do uh, get a game over, but it takes you just back to the beginning of that level. It doesn't take you all the way back to the beginning of the game like it would have been something like Streets of Rage 2, uh, which is, you know, 
pretty much expected these days, but still, it's a big change. Um, and uh, also, it's very smart about its difficulty. There are multiple difficulty levels, so you start on normal. I've been playing entirely on normal. Um, and then at the end of a level, uh, if you... You pick assists. Yes, yeah. they don't call them difficulty levels, they call them assists. No, no, they have both. The, they have, they have both. Assist. There is a... They have a they have a um, they have an option to increase the difficulty and I think even decrease it as well, um, but it's separate from the assists. The assists are something that you can hmm. uh, when you when you start a new game you uh, decide on the difficulty level, but assists are something you can decide on a per level basis, which is very smart because if you are banging your head against a particular level and you're getting really tired of it, um, when you get that game over and you jump back to the character select to try again, you can enable assists and the assists are pretty small but they can really take you over the edge if you're just barely missing the end of the level and you want a little extra. So um, where do you find these these uh, difficulty levels? Because I, I, I think you have them. to unlock them because I know that they exist, that I've been playing entirely on normal. My game save says normal. <laughs> so um, okay. I'm pretty darn sure they exist, but I think you have to unlock the option to increase the difficulty to like hard or hardest or something. Oh, I see. Yes, when you're starting the story mode, there's easy... Uh, Easy says, for those who love every part of a beat 'em up except getting beat up. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. So there is a, and there's a mania mode uh, at that. They, I guess you have to unlock, but normally you get. They have four levels of difficulty at the start. Um, when talking about options, one of the funniest options in the game is the food option. Streets of Rage has always had uh, two health items in it. One is an apple, and the other is a full-sized baked turkey um, and eating the apple would usually heal you about 25% and the turkey would heal you all the way in the options on this game you can change the small food item and the big food item to be your favorite foods so the small food item can change from an apple to a rice ball or a croissant or some onion rings or a slice of pizza or a plate of tofu. So vegan options are available in this game. <laughs> yes. The uh, the big food item can be a bowl of ramen, um, a large bone-in Christmas ham, um, a gigantic plate of French fries with two forks, or a hamburger. Uh, also, a large dinner salad. <laughs> <laughs> so you have, you have options here uh, to customize the game in many, many visual ways talked about the lighting uh, but you can also make the game vegetarian or vegan friendly. you know i think that's something that some people will appreciate and i, I wanted to very quickly finish explaining the assist thing because i do think it's very very smart um yes of yeah, course when you get to the end of a level and you've gotten the game over and you want to jump back in maybe you've done it a couple of times now and you're getting frustrated uh, you can enable assists and what they do is in exchange for dividing the amount of score you get. So, um, you know, at the end of every level, you get a score, and it actually keeps a running total of your total score over the course of your entire game, uh, which plays into how things get unlocked. Um, but so let's say you want to uh, take an assist, you might divide your score in half, and you get an extra life. Or you divide it, I think it's by four, and you get two extra lives and an extra star, or something like that. There's several levels of assists that you can add on. Um, and even if you add all of the assists on, which basically zeroes out your score, you know, you're, you're taking multiple, uh, you know, divisions of your score. Um, but it, you know, if you're really frustrated with the police precinct level, for example, like I think I, I took a, an assist on that level because I kept getting right to the end and dying just before I killed the commissioner. Right. And so I was just, 
I really wanted to move on, so I took an assist. And um, it's not hugely one punitive. of the best bosses of all time, by the way. That, I mean, it's it's so classic, not of all time, maybe, but definitely the best boss in this game is that commissioner. And he's I very, loved uh, the commissioner. I mean, the office. The office adds so much character to that. Just he's got all the tchotchkes on his desk and stuff. Oh my god. Yeah, loved the commissioner. But yeah, the the I think the assists option here is really smart. Um, the game is designed around repeating these levels until you get them right. You know, it, it, so you should absolutely expect to play every single one of these levels, say three, four, maybe even five times to to get through it. Um, and that's fine, but if you're just barely not making it, the assists are such a smart option. And the idea that you can just enable them, you can back, you can even quit out of the level at any time and go back to the character select and pick a uh, um, pick a um, uh, assist and start over. And there were times where I did that. Maybe I got halfway through the level and was like, mm, it's not quite happening for me this time. I'm going to bounce back, change character, maybe take an assist and give this another try. And I'm I'm just so happy that they added that to this game because it it keeps the arcade feel while also giving you uh, giving you a little bit of a release valve if you just want to make more progress, but you're not quite, quite, quite making it. Let's talk a little bit about the music on this one. So, the Streets of Rage um, is really identified with its soundtrack. I think the original Sega Genesis is for kind of retro console fans. Um, it's the it's the console that had the best music. That is a very controversial statement, had, Shane. That is a very controversial statement. I am gonna say that the the when used correctly, the real old heads know it was it was you know god tier. But also there were a lot of real farty soundtracks. On sure. The, uh, on the Sega Genesis. <laughs> yes. Um, so individual artistic works will vary, but the technology behind the FM synthesis on the Sega Genesis was more advanced than on the comparable Nintendo hardware. My god, Jane, you are going to get so many hate tweets. I, I will I will make a very brief aside to explain the difference between Sega Genesis audio and this, the audio of the, uh, of the SNES. The Sega Genesis did FM synthesis, which meant, in a sense, you had a little Yamaha chip that was the same sort of chip that would drive the fancy Yamaha synthesizer keyboards of the era. The Yamaha, yeah, really better. in there. Whereas on the Nintendo side, they had a special purpose chip that was developed by Sony that rather than synthesizing uh, music using, uh, you know, using FM synthesis, it was uh, sample based. And so a game would load, so you, okay, think back to um, the, the keyboards that you might have played, like the Yamaha style uh, keyboard that would be like a synthesizer keyboard back in the day. Okay, that's, that's the Sega Genesis style. Now, do you remember uh, ever watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off? And he had the thing where he loaded a floppy, dr uh, floppy into his keyboard and loaded up like, I think it was like a fart sound or something. And then he played a song with fart sounds. Yeah. That's what an SNES could do. The SNES, the developer- you literally, you're confusing people. You literally just told them that the Sega had the fartier sound. <laughs> well, okay, what I'm saying is that the the uh, the SNES, you, the developer could load uh, sound clips into their game that could be, okay, this is what a harp sounds like, or this is what a guitar sounds like, or it could be something like, this is what a dog bark sounds like. And then it could play music out of those dog barks, uh, just like your, you know, kind of thing. So they were very, very different technologies. One is uh, all of the sound is created by, uh, you know, FM synthesis. The other is basically pitch shifting recordings, little mini soundbite recordings into audio, which could potentially give you something that sounds more realistically like actual recorded music. Because maybe you've got a guitar hit 
and then you pitch shift that guitar hit sound up and down and you've got something that sounds more realistically like a guitar than something that the Genesis could create. But in really expert hands, the Genesis could create music that sounded absolutely and kick ass and uh, and Yuzo Koshiro who did the soundtrack for the Streets of Rage games is pretty widely considered one of the greatest video game soundtrack musician types ever I mean his Streets of Rage soundtracks are great yes. he did other great soundtracks on lots of other great games looking up he's fantastic yeah so I mean this is one of my favorite soundtracks this is one of the soundtracks that got me excited about video game soundtracks um, so the, the creator Yuzo Koshiro um he made, I think, one of the kind of benchmarks for good music in a video game of this era. Um, so he was really squeezing everything he could out of that Yamaha chip uh, in the Sega Genesis. And he produced something that has all these different kind of sounds to it. It has um, like a, a dance music influence, like almost like a Motown sound going in it. Uh, there's, there's so many different kinds of influences, like a, uh, 80s synth pop thing going on, um, electronic dance music, and it's all, like, perfectly synthesized in this soundtrack. I'm particularly thinking of Streets of Rage 2, mm -hmm. which I think is even better than Streets of Rage 1. Oh, yeah. The soundtrack that we have here, um, I think is... I mean, they don't obviously suffer from any of the limitations that they had um, trying to compose music for a whatever it was for a Yamaha YM2612. Uh, they can they can record a full on soundtrack. And there is, I believe, some involvement in this soundtrack from Yuzo Koshiro, who is still out there working as a game composer. Yeah. Uh, but this is not composed by Yuzo Koshiro. Yeah. So, um, this is one of the things that had me concerned when uh, I heard about this game and how it was coming along was that they uh, they got a guy named, uh, he's a French uh, composer named Olivier Devieri. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, uh, but anyway, this guy, he is, or it might be Olivier, Olivier, I don't know. He's French, so it's, it's like Oliver, but spelled with a little bit of extra vowels. Uh, anyway, uh, he's a, he's a, a, a composer who's mostly not worked in this style, from what I can tell. Like, Shane, this is the same guy that did the soundtrack for A Plague Tale that we played last year. Yeah. Um, and that was much more like uh, um, orchestral soundtrack type of stuff. Um, and honestly, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think this soundtrack is pretty strong, um, but uh, it's also a bit more of a mix of different styles and um, a big mix of quality. Some of the songs that uh, that this person did are absolute bangers and, and absolutely great. And really what you want out of a Streets of Rage soundtrack is songs that make you feel cool while punching. And sometimes this does that with 100% accuracy. It makes you feel cool while punching. Um, and there are some really great callback music. Uh, they did bring, so what apparently happened was the game had gotten pretty far along uh, without Yuzo Koshiro's uh, involvement. Um, and then he played a demo of it at PAX or something and then agreed to do a couple of tracks. Um, so there are some tracks by him. Uh, some of them are uh, remixes of his uh, earlier games uh, soundtracks, which is nice to have those callbacks musically to uh, older Streets of Rage games. And I think also some of his stuff on the soundtrack is, is new stuff. Um, and he also was working with Motohiro uh, Kawashima, who also worked with him on the Streets of Rage 2 soundtrack, which is great. There's other people brought in too, though. Um, now, I, 
maybe this is a cynical take on this, but I think this is something that a lot of indie games that are trying to play for uh, for a retro gamer market do is they'll hire uh, they'll hire uh, retro video game uh, composers with name recognition to do one track on their soundtrack, um, and that way they can put that person's name in the marketing, um, which you know causes certain people, myself included, ears to perk up. Um, but maybe what they've really done is essentially just just yeah. one track. I mean, it's important, especially with Yuzo Koshiro, because one of the very unique things about the Streets of Rage titles in an in the Sega Genesis era was the fact that they put the composer's name right there in the title screen. Yeah. Like, his name was front and center in Streets of Rage. So it's always been very clear that for this series, the music is a key piece. Uh, it's a... It's an it's a very important thing to the creation of the game and to your enjoyment of the game and to the what they want you to experience. So, um, the fact that they had him involved, I think, is a good. It's not just a nod to the fans. It it is important to have this continuity. It's important to have the feeling of like this truly being a sequel, despite the gulf of twenty plus years. Uh, between uh, this and the previous entries. It, it does help. I, I will also mention that they, they did a little bit more of that sort of jukebox of good retro video game composer work here. Uh, there's also tracks on the soundtrack mm -hmm. by uh, Yoko Shimamura, who is famous for having done the soundtracks to Final Fight and uh, I think Streets of Street Fighter 2 or some, some version of Street Fighter 2. Um, she's really, really excellent. And uh, Keiji Yamagishi, who famously did a lot of the soundtracks for uh, for uh, Tecmo games on the NES, specifically the Ninja Gaiden games, are uh, probably what he's most known for. And also uh, Harumi Fujiata, I think, if I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, uh, that's another composer who did work on Final Fight. But then in addition to that, they've also got uh, Das Mortal. Uh, that's got an umlaut on there. I don't know anything about them. And also Groundislava. Uh, which is, uh, I think, a funny name because it is ground is lava. Mm -hmm. But also, I read it for the first I don't know dozen times as like a like a European city or something like that. But uh, ground is lava um, also contributed music to the game, and that that long list of composers kind of uh, highlights the fact that this is a very varied soundtrack. There are tracks on this that don't mm -hmm. sound like Streets of Rage music as I usually conceive of it. Um, no. I think the uh, the guiding principle for this soundtrack feels like it was 90s retro. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More so than, you know, the originals, of course, there was no such thing as 90s retro. Those were trying to do hard hitting synth club music. Yeah. I think that was what the, that's what the original Streets of Rage games were going for. Um, would this game have worked? if they really had just leaned into that same original ethos of club music. Well, I think some of the tracks here do. Um, but I, for me, I think the 90s retro stuff uh, hits a little better for this series because the overall aesthetic of Streets of Rage is now one that is retro. Like, it, this, is a, this is a series that if it continues to a Streets of Rage 12 that's gonna be released 10 years from now, I expect it to still have a like '90s, uh, slightly synthwave-inspired retro aesthetic and sound, uh, and I think that there you have to kind of acknowledge that it's kind of crystallizing around that um, as a kind of a retro aesthetic. Yeah. So it's it is a little different from the previous soundtracks. Um, 
I don't think that this soundtrack negatively impacted my experience. There are a lot of tracks in this game that feel more similar to something you would experience in these retro or synthwave styled games, things like Hotline Miami. Um, and that sound is really, it's a good sound and I really like it. Um, it's a little different from what I'm used to from Streets of Rage, but I am okay with that. Um, I think there will be a lot of different opinions on the soundtrack for Streets of Rage 4. Um, I have not had spent enough time with it uh, to really totally make up on, up on my mind on it, but nothing was an immediate turnoff, and there are some absolute total bangers on this soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them have that instant callback to the original, and some of them are just, you know, great atmospheric songs of their own right. Yeah. So going to really I think enjoy altogether, it. I'd say the, the main difference for me between this soundtrack and Older Streets of Rage is that they're much more trying to fit music to stages. But not that the old games, the stages and the music didn't fit well together, but there, the soundtrack was all of a piece. You can play the Streets of Rage 2 soundtrack and it sounds like an album because it's all fitting together very, very nicely. Here, it's a bit more varied. Um, each level has music that I th- think suits it well. Um, uh, but listening through the entire thing as an album on Spotify uh, over the last couple of days, for example, it it doesn't hang together quite as well as a Streets of Rage 2, for example. But it's still, I think, a really, really good video game soundtrack. So I'm still giving it full points. Um, Even if, and I agree, like I think probably this will be the most uh, controversial part of Streets of Rage uh, 4, but I still think it's really solid. So, um, you know, if you're coming to it expecting basically a new Streets of Rage 2 soundtrack, it's not that, but it's still really good. And I guess that's about all we have to say about Streets of Rage 4. I'm so glad this thing exists. I, uh, as a huge Streets of Rage fan, I didn't expect to ever see a Streets of Rage 4. Then when I found out it was coming out, I was just crossing my fingers for a very long time that it would be good. And almost as soon as I picked it up and started playing it, I was immediately like, yes, this is exactly what I was hoping for. This is a really good continuation of the series. I'm glad to see it's out there getting a positive reaction from fans and from hopefully new players too. I I was hoping to get some more, uh, you know, Laura, uh, Nate, sorry you couldn't make it on this episode. I was hoping to get your perspectives as folks who are not like deeply embedded in the Streets of Rage scene. Uh, but it's, it was just, it was enormous, like, relief to me, and also a huge excitement to play something new in the Streets of Rage series and find that it holds up and that I still enjoy it and that there are uh, new things to be done in this series that feel like Streets of Rage, but also new. I don't know, that was very exciting to me. So, I, I loved it. I'm really, really glad we played it. And for me, I mean, I, it came along at a very good time. Um, I was really excited about the idea of playing a brawler and we had been looking for a brawler for the show and I had landed on um, scrappers but then it turns out that it has to rely on game center I don't even want to get into it it was it was not a great experience to get that trying to, to try and get that running online and then here comes what I really wanted after all streets of rage with good online play something I could sit down and play with you and have a good bro bro time and it was great yeah. so 
Uh, Streets of Rage has some top marks. Absolutely. And yeah, very briefly, we didn't touch on it. The online play is two players only, which actually worked extremely well, even on the Switch. I was expecting a lot more pain than we ended up encountering. It played great. Uh, four players in person co-op, which sounds like it'll be a blast. I can't wait to give that a try. So anyway, listeners, if you have thoughts about Streets of Rage, we would love to hear your reactions. I know some of our, our listeners have already been sharing them with us over Discord. Um, and you know, some folks are as into it as we are. And some folks are not, and it's been a really uh, spirited and interesting conversation on our Discord. Uh, you can come join that if you come to uh, patreon.com slash the short game, which is the best way to support the show. And also, uh, our uh, our show is entirely supported by listeners, and all of those listeners get instant access to our Discord, where we talk about the games that we're playing, we, uh, we talk about the games we're going to be playing, we set up uh, times to play multiplayer uh, with our listeners if we can, so come join us there. And so thank you again to our listeners. Uh, I'll shout out a couple of them uh, right now. Thank you very much to our uh, Patreon supporter, Jason Emery, and also to Jeremy, uh, no last name on the Patreon account, uh, so I'll leave it there. But thank you to both of them, and uh, thanks to all of our other listeners, of course. Uh, so if you are one of our patrons, thank you very much. If you're not, join us on Patreon, and we'd love to have a chat with you on the Discord. Patrons at $1 a month or more get instant access to that Discord. Of course, sorry, because you can find our website uh, on the web at www.theshortgame.net. You can find our contact form there if you want to get in touch with us that way. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at underscore shortgame. Uh, or, of course, you can find me on Twitter at Reagan K. That's R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. And Shane, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at 8BitShane. And you can also find me on the Short Game Discord, which I would also like to say has been a really great solace in this time of being totally a shut-in. So I have really delighted in the chat and kind of socializing that I've had with our patrons on the Discord. It's been really wonderful lately. Yeah. And of course, if you can't uh, support the show that way, the other best way to support the show is just share it with a friend. Uh, tweet about it or tell a friend about it. Uh, you know, talk about it on wherever you talk about video games. Uh, we really appreciate that sort of support as well. So thank you to everyone who has done that lately. Um, and uh, listeners, thank you so much for listening to The Short Game.